0: Good to see you all again. Good morning. Uh, great summer Sunday. Let's talk some real estate. The uh, site Trulia, two years ago, decided that it would survey 150 major American cities and would do so on the basis of the seven deadly sins. So they'd be looking at each city in light of Wrath and gluttony and lust and sloth and envy and greed and vanity. And then, having looked at these major cities, they would rate them to see what number one city was saint city and what city was sin city. So, uh, you wonder what are these categories? Well, for sloth, for example, they looked at the population of a town to decide how many people were regularly engaged in. Physical activity that is in exercise rooms or clubs. For greed, they looked at spending habits. For lust, they looked at the number of adult venues in a given city. They had all these categories and then rated the cities. And number one city, sin city in the United States is? No, it's not Las Vegas. Any other guests? Chicago? No. Thank God it's not Chicago. It is New Orleans, Louisiana, number one sin city in the United States. More than any other city in America, it runs the top of the seven deadly sins. Interestingly enough, the citizens of Louisiana consider themselves to be the happiest citizens in America. Now you put those two things together, what does that tell us about the world we're living in? That is number one Sin City. Number one Saint City. Any guesses? Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids yeah. Now that's <laughs> it's kind of an inside joke for some of us. No, it is not Grand Rapids, it is not Berwin, it's not Cicero, it's number one Saint City, Provo, Utah. Yeah. I mean, really, wouldn't you love to live there? Look at that. It's just saint city. It's beautiful, everything about it. I want you to imagine that Jesus came to this place, Provo, Utah, and stood before the local clergy association and said to them, you know, good people of Provo, it will be better for you in the day of judgment if you were in New Orleans. Now, if you get how shocking a statement that would be, you begin to understand what Jesus was saying in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. It's all about real estate. This summer at Elmhurst Church, we've been talking about the lakeside, and we're going to move back to the Sea of Galilee this morning. We're going to be talking about this place where Jesus spent perhaps the most productive years of his ministry, that is productive as we might define it. We looked at Jesus in the village of Capernaum. We looked at him healing people. We were out in a borrowed boat with Jesus as he uh, manages this incredible catch of fish. We were at the seaside when he fed 5,000 people. We looked at him walking on the water. We heard him talking about the bread of life. We looked at him all in this one area right around the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And this morning, we're even going to focus further on three of those towns and look at some of the real estate in those towns because these are the places that Jesus talked about. The town of Capernaum, which was his headquarters of ministry. It's right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And then to the north, you can only see part of it, is the town of Chorazin. And then over to the right is Bethsaida on the other side of the Jordan River to the north Of the Sea of Galilee. So it's in this three-town region, which has been called the evangelical triangle by biblical scholars, that the majority of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry took place. I mean, read the Gospels. Jesus had this incredible impact in a very small place with a relatively limited number of people, but for a number of years, this is where it all happened. So now we're going to come back to that moment in chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel where he has just sent out the disciples to work in that area, and he is left by himself. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, we read, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So he's just sent them out on a missionary journey, You remember, he deployed them, having called them into ministry. And in Luke, in Matthew 10 and 11, Jesus himself does what he told his disciples to do. I mean, we follow the masters, right? We're walking in his footsteps. So if he's doing it, somehow we're expected to do it as well. In Matthew 10 and 11, you have all of this ministry, all of this activity going on. And in all of these places, it must have been saint city. I mean, Think of the things he said, and think of the things people saw in that area. It was like all of this incredible spiritual richness poured into this place. Jesus himself leading the charge, showing the way, and expecting that his people would follow. Who wouldn't want to have been there at that time? I would have. I would have. I mean, I'd I would have loved to see a man with leprosy. Read about it in Matthew's Gospel. In front of Jesus, the flesh of his body being eaten away by a horrible disease. And he says to Jesus, You know, Jesus, if you want, you can make me clean. (laughs) Jesus said, Well, I want. You're clean. And he looks at his body, and suddenly the flesh that was rotting is pink and healthy. He's healed. Who wouldn't want to see that? I'd want to see that. I'd love to have been with Jesus when he walked into Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum. You can still see the outlines of a church that has been built over that house to this day. Some of you were there a few years ago. You'd walk into that house, and Jesus looks around, and he sees Peter's mother-in-law. She's lying down. That's not where she usually is. She's always up working, taking care of the guys. And he knows she's sick. And he walks over, and he touches her, and suddenly she's not sick anymore, and she gets up and starts making sandwiches for the group. And it says she served them. Who would want to be there when a sick person is touched and suddenly they're up on their feet doing what they ought to be doing? I'd love to have been there. A, a military man, those of you who have some military service, you, you know how the chain of command works, Right? In these towns, he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I've got a servant. I love the guy. He, he is really sick, and, and I know you can heal him if, if you just say the word. And Jesus said, well, where is he? I'll come with you. And the, and the guy says, no, you don't have to come with me. I, I know how this works. If you say it, it's going to happen. So just say it. Jesus said, I wish everybody had a faith like yours. And he says, the man is healed. And the soldier goes home, finds his servant is healed at that very moment. Who wouldn't want to be there to tell that story? I'd want to be there. Or, Or... I mean, it goes on and on and on in the Gospels, right? In Capernaum, there's a fellow who is paralyzed. He is laying on a stretcher, and his friends so badly want him to be healed by Jesus. So they carry him to the house. There are so many people in the house they can't get in, so they go up on the roof, tear off the shingles, lower the guy down through the roof in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at this man who has been lowered down from the roof, and he says to him, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" And everybody around says, what? Your sins are forgiven. Who do you think you are you can forgive sins? She said, oh, really? You think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand to be healed? But so that you can know I can do these things, he looks at the man who's paralyzed and said, son, get up. And the paralyzed man stands up from his stretcher, rolls up his mat, and walks out of the room. Who wouldn't want to be there? Who wouldn't want to see the demon possessed suddenly set free? Who wouldn't want to be at all of these stories? They go on and on and on. Walk with Jesus through the streets of Capernaum. Stand with him in the synagogue while he teaches. Now, I know some of you say, well, I don't know if I'd want to be there. I'm telling you, I'd want to be there. Because when something happens, I want to be there. I am the original gaper's block. You hear about me on the traffic report. Something's happening. Everybody slows down to see what's happening. That's me. I want to know what's happening. When it happens, I want to be there. I want to know it. I don't want to miss it. So you've got all of these things happening, all of that amazing work. And now listen to what Jesus says to the places where he begins his ministry. He looks at these cities, and he says to them, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I'm telling you, it will be be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Did, Did we just hear that right? Woe to you. All of these places, I did all of these things, all of these places, you heard all of these words, woe to you. These are places that Jesus knew and he worked at. John says that three of his disciples were born in Bethsaida. They knew him in these towns. He knew them in these towns. A few miles up the road in and they were buzzing about the the news that with two loaves, five loaves and two fish, Jesus had fed 5,000 people. They're talking about all of these things. And yet Jesus looks at these towns, and he says, woe to you. What is going on? Woe to you. It's it's like hearing something you don't want to hear, and that word woe has a visceral impact. When, when somebody says woe to you or woe is me, here's the picture I get. It's like, you know, the mouth drops open in astonishment and, and the hands sort of cut, not, not wanting to believe what you're hearing. Woe to you. How is that possible? Woe is me. How is that possible? How is it possible that... With all the things you saw, it would be better if you were in Tyre and Sidon than in those days in the day of judgment. So I guess you need to know what happened to Tyre and Sidon, right? If you were in Chorazin and Bethsaida, and Jesus said in the day of judgment, it would be better for you to have been in Tyre and Sidon, you might have thought of Ezekiel chapter 26. The whole chapter is about what God says is going to happen to Tyre this coastal city of Palestine. Listen to the way that chapter ends with these haunting words. God says to Tyre, I will bring you to a horrible end and you will be no more. You will be sought, but you'll never be found, declares the sovereign Lord. And and Jesus is saying, it's going to be better there than it will be here for you. What is that? How could that be? Haunting words, hard to understand and accept. But Jesus goes on, Matthew 11, 23, 24. He talks about Capernaum, the town that he perhaps knew best and the town he was most familiar with. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the skies? You're going to be elevated? No. You will go down to the depths because if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But Sodom is just a salt waste. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. No, how can that be? This is his hometown he's talking about the base of his operations, his friends, his neighbors, his church, his community. You are headed for the eternal realm of the dead? Come on. When it's all over, you think you're going to be lifted up? No, you're going to be headed down. Not heaven, but Hades, the realm of the dead. One author says, it is the shadowy underworld, opposite of everything that heaven has and heaven holds. A a city... A city like Sodom, Sodom, a town that is memorialized to this day in the name of the sin to which it refers. Sodom, a town of which Jesus, uh, uh, God once said, "If I can find ten righteous people in that town, I'm going to spare it." But there weren't ten righteous in the whole town. And it's going to be more tolerable for that Sodom than Capernaum, the place where Jesus lived and worked. How's it possible? Why does he say it to them? What's the point of it all? He says they saw it all that he did. They heard it all that he said, and they did not. Here's the key word, repent. Repent. Repent in the Bible simply means they didn't turn. They didn't turn from, and they didn't turn to. They didn't turn from unbelieving to believing. They didn't didn't turn from selfishness to selflessness. They didn't turn from sin to righteous living. They didn't turn from themselves to God, from hate to love, from destruction to salvation. In spite of everything they saw and everything in front of them, they didn't turn. So you get the picture, right? The more God shows in our lives, in our world, in our cities, in our nation, in my life, the greater the responsibility to act on it. And acting on it means turning from everything that takes you from God and turning toward everything in which you walk with God in the footsteps of Jesus. These lovely lakeside villages... Were consigned to the depths because they didn't repent. One commentator says they were privileged with the presence of Jesus. Yeah, I guess we all are right. But they didn't act on that presence and they could only expect judgment at the end of the age. The simple truth of these hard verses, and these are hard verses, they are hard verses. The simple truth of these hard verses is the greater the revelation, the greater the accountability and responsibility. The more that's poured into us, the more that's expected from us. So here we are, 2018, a few days before Independence Day celebration as a nation. And I look at our nation and I say, so God, what have you poured into this place? in the last several hundred years. What are the things that we have? What are the things that we enjoy? What is becoming of us? What is the direction in which we are moving? Is it a direction as a nation which walks toward righteousness, toward justice, toward holiness, toward a godly way of living and not only treating ourselves but all people in the same way? Look at what God's poured into this nation. It is unimaginable that at the day of judgment, God would look at this place like America and say, it would be better for you if you were some tiny pinprick, forgotten place in the continent of lost Africa. Who'd want to hear that? I wouldn't. Closer to home, you know. How about a church? How about Elmhurst Church? How about Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church? Seventy years ago, we became a Christian Reformed congregation. Prior to that, we were born out of an incredible, transforming experience in the life of one woman that gave birth to this place. It is an amazing story all these years later. What has God poured into this congregation? I've been around the church long enough to know that most congregations do not have a history like this congregation. They just don't. How do you account for that? I account for it simply by the grace of Almighty God. The fact that for whatever reason it is, God has poured himself into this place and continued to do so year after year after year after year. What is it that God would look at and expect from a church into which he poured himself all of those years? What would he want from us? He'd want us to take every step that leads us closer to Jesus and brings that presence into the community in which he's planted us. And anything that takes us away from that is something we don't want any part of. I, I can't imagine, I can't bear the thought of a day when God would look at a congregation like this and say, Woe is you, Elmhurst. He yeah, gave you everything. What did you do with it? Where's it taken you? What have you done with it? Yeah, it's one thing to look at the nation and it's one thing to look at a church, but sooner or later, when you read the Word of God and you look at stories like this, I have to look at myself. And I, I suppose you do too, right? At the most personal level, I will tell you that I truly think that Jesus has been present with me every day of my life. From the moment of my birth, my parents both knew Jesus Christ and brought me to a little church in Europe and had me baptized, and I was marked as a child of God, and I was raised as a child of God. This isn't boasting. This is, in a sense, incredibly sobering. We never missed worship services at our our home, sometimes three times a, a day on Sundays, which I thought was a bit much, actually. I um, spent most of my primary school years and high school years at schools that were committed to the truth, to teach the truth of God as well as to lead me academically. I was part of a group of young people that had a spiritual awakening in our junior year of high school and wanted to set the school and the world on fire. I mean, that's what it, it, all of those stuff poured into my life. Good people invested themselves in me in such a way that I got to go to a Christian college, a Christian seminary. I got to graduate, and I got to serve a church I loved for 41 years. Hardly a day of which I would regret to say that was a bad day. Come on, 41 years of good days? Now, I know I see life as the glass half full, but the truth is most of my life it has been overflowing. I am married to a woman who has led me toward godliness. I'm blessed with a family whose love and kindness and graciousness accepts me for the imperfect person they know I am. I can't imagine a day when Jesus would say to me, De "Young, you think on the day of judgment, you're going to be lifted up? I'm looking at myself and saying, what is there in me, God? What is there in me that leads you, that leads me from you? Are there paths I'm still walking, directions I'm still moving, paths I'm still taking that need to be turned toward you? Jesus looked with profound sadness and judgment on communities and people he loved but didn't love him fully. But praise God, folks. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. Because you look at the end of that chapter, Matthew chapter 11. And you're thinking, oh God, all of these things you poured into me, and I'm still in some places turning away from you. There's still this incredible invitation, this incredible promise, these words that just bring life and breathe life into me because Jesus looks at Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin and Elmhurst and Elmhurst Church and Bert Young and says, Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me, meek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. That's where the chapter ends. That's the invitation. That's the word. That's the direction. That's what I need. That's what we need to say to New Orleans. We need to say to Provo, Utah. We need to say to America, to Elmhurst, to ourselves. Come to me. I have everything you need. I am everything you need. You come to me. You know, you wonder what became of the towns that Jesus loved, you know, that apparently did not love him in return. I want to take you back to Corazon, one of those towns. It's still there today. It's a bus stop on a Holy Land tour. This is what it looks like. It is about the most desolate, dry, unattractive collection of basalt rocks, volcanic ash that you can visit in the Holy Land. There's nothing about that that appeals to me. And on the bus stop, when the tour group walks through it, you kind of sense this heaviness of this town. I mean, this is where Jesus walked. This is the place he did his work. And suddenly I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking what he said, woe to you, Corazon, woe to you. It didn't have to be that way, but it is that way. Well, that's not the life I want to live. That's not the legacy I want to leave. That's not the place I long to live. A heap of ruins that are an archaeological lament for what might have been. I I want to come to Jesus. I want to learn from him. I want to walk in relationship with him. I want to let him meet the deepest needs of my life. I want to be refreshed, and I want my deepest longings to be fulfilled. I want to be the Psalm 94, verse 12, old guy, fresh and green and still bearing fruit. Who wouldn't want that? Jesus is calling us into life that doesn't crush and kill. He calls us to be part of communities that don't crush and kill. He calls us to be part of a community that loves Him, walks with Him, and brings freedom and life to ourselves and all those we live with. And he says, it's not hard and it's not heavy, but it is absolutely essential that you come. Learn what I've done for you. Accept what I've given you. Give back to Him. Give to others all that I've poured into your life. So somewhere, you know, we all find ourselves on the continuum between saint city and sin city. And this morning we're hearing the the words of Jesus. I want to give you all I have for you. I want you to take everything I can give you. I want you to walk with me every step. I want you to live with me faithfully, receive it all thankfully, share it all freely. I want you to live fully, and I'm saying I wouldn't miss that for the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. How is it possible, Lord Jesus Christ, that when you pour so, so, so very much into a life, into a community, into a place, into a people, how is it possible that we're not walking with you like we should We're not listening like we should. We're not learning. We're not growing. At our finest moments, it is truly what we want. It is what we desire, and it is what we will do. And so this morning, I thank you that these incredible words of grace come even in hard places when some of us are sifting through brokenness and hurt and pain and failure and weakness. When we're sifting through that, the incredible words come... And find rest. So we come, and we are reminded of all the things you did, all the things you said, and we come and we say, Lord Jesus, we believe, we know, we long to live in the path you lead us. In your name, amen.